0: Now, last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was going to happen. They're going into Jerusalem. He tells them, I'm going to get all kinds of beat up and, and suffer because of that. And he wants to prepare them for what's going to happen. And we mentioned that we should be prepared for whatever happens in our lives. And we shouldn't be surprised at difficulties and hardships because we know they're a part of life. Our, we have a small class on, on Sunday mornings. We meet during Sunday school time and Today's topic was disappointment with God. How many have ever been disappointed with God? Come on. I think we all have at some point. God doesn't answer your prayer when you think he should or how you think he should or that he doesn't answer it at all. It's gonna come. And Jesus was preparing his disciples for the same thing. Don't be surprised. Don't be disappointed that it doesn't happen the way you think it's gonna happen. Because It's not. Now, I mentioned last week that the disciples, you know, they're not, the, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. And whenever Jesus tries to teach them something, they don't seem to understand it. This was the third time he's telling them what's gonna happen, and they still didn't understand it. And it's evidenced by the next section of scripture that we're gonna talk about this morning. We ended last week on this verse, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, if I hear Jesus say that to me, I'm thinking I'm gonna be really solemn and pretty humble about my next statement. But no. Once again that is Jesus is saying his suffering is ahead and they hear overthrow is ahead. Because their next statement just floors me. Now if I'm if I'm writing the Bible about people who follow God, I'm going to leave out all the dumb things that they do. <laughs> I'm going to only put in the good things and leave out all the mistakes and sins and and dumb things they say and do. But God includes them so that we can see ourselves in them. Because even the venerated disciples were at times pretty dumb. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel like I'm not such a bad guy when I mess up. It shows me that God uses regular sinful people who mess up like you and me and he uses us to accomplish great things so what did the guy say after jesus says i'm gonna die verse 35 then james and john the sons of Zebedee, came to him teacher they said we want you to do for us whatever we ask what do you want me to do for you jesus asked they replied let us one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory you don't know what you're asking," Jesus says. "Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with?" "Oh, we can," they answered. And Jesus said, "You will drink that cup I drank and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who, for whom they have been prepared." When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, "You know that those who are regarded as rulers." of the Gentiles rule it lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many let's pray father thank you again for your word And I pray that your Holy Spirit helps us to rightly divide your word of truth. Allow it to matter to us what we read and what we study this morning. Let it mean something to us when we leave and let it affect our lives. We ask in your name, Lord. Amen. So, clearly, these guys did not hear and understand what Jesus just said. They respond with, I'm going to be crucified with this statement. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I don't know who you are, but this is a pretty presumptuous statement (laughs) for anybody to ask anything. Is there anyone here that would feel comfortable asking Jesus that question? Jesus, do whatever I ask you to do. You guys are pretty cocky, I'm thinking. Maybe they felt like they've been with Jesus just long enough, and Jesus owes them something. Now, we would never say that but you ever think it? Lord, I've been serving you for 40 years and I think you owe me. <laughs> I think you need to answer this prayer for me. I've been faithful for you for so long. You need to answer this prayer. How often do you read something in the Bible and yet walk away totally missing what it was saying to you? You read something, well, I, you walk away forgetting what you read. Or better yet, You read it and you say, you know what? I don't need to hear that. But so-and-so really needs to hear that. (laughs) Or you hear a sermon and you wish, oh man, I wish that other person was here. They need to hear what that sermon says. Instead of saying, what's God saying to me in the sermon? Or what's God saying to me in his word? Now, if you compare Matthew's account, we see who else was asking the question. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down asking a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant one of these two two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So we have a stage mother. We have a, a mom that's gonna intercede for her sons. Hey Jesus, give me what I want. So, let's look back a little bit. The first time Jesus predicts his death, Peter argues with Jesus about it. The second time, they argue amongst themselves who is the greatest. And now they want to be promoted to positions of honor and power. Now one commentator says it this way. This narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity for it shows that proper, that proper and holy zeal is often accompanied by ambition. In other words, Jesus... It says we should always check our heart attitude before and when we're doing anything for God. Are we doing it because we want recognized? Do we want power and position? When you start doing something for God, what is your heart attitude in what you're doing? Are you doing it to be humble? You don't care for the recognition? Or are you doing it because you appreciate when people recognize you? These guys wanted to sit on Jesus right and left. In other words, man, we've been serving you, God. We want to be right up there with you. We want the same recognition that you're going to get. Our recognition comes at the end. <laughs> when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. We may never get any recognition here. It's okay, the Bible says, honor, give honor to those whose honor is due. But we don't do it for that reason. And we don't expect recognition or honor and if you're doing it for that you're doing it for the wrong reason how many people who get in positions of power and authority in the christian world do we see fall because they get full of themselves they have all this recognition and power and authority and people love them and lavish upon them and they begin to get it in their head that they're somebody And God has to bring them down. So Jesus responds to that question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He's asking, so they can verbalize exactly what they want. They're pretty generic and they're they're asking. Do whatever we want. Jesus says, well, what exactly do you want? And verse 37 says, let us sit at your right hand and the other at your left. Now, why were they asking that particular question? Partly because... They knew the prophecies of the future kingdom. Matthew nineteen, twenty-eight. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says, at the renewal of all things. They must have skipped that part when they were listening to that verse. Another example of people taking something out of context in the Bible. This is at the end of the age, guys, not now. We're not going in to conquer them. That's gonna come at the end of the age. And they did not understand the full context of the prophecy that Matthew was saying, which is the reflection of the Old Testament. When you read God's word, you have to be sure that you read it in context, the whole paragraph, sometimes the whole book to understand what is being said, why it's being said, and to whom it's being said. When you pull one verse out of context, it's easy to misunderstand what God's saying. If I tell you, and I've said this before, the Bible says, curse God and die. How many know that the Bible says that? What's the context of that verse? We all know the context of that verse. There are things in the Bible and there's a saying that says you can prove anything you want with the Bible. Just grab a verse here, grab a verse there and you can prove anything you want. These guys were trying to prove whatever they wanted from one verse. Verse 38 says, you have no idea what you're asking for. Jesus responds sharply. You don't know what you're you're getting into by asking me that. You ever pray for something that you really wanted, you didn't get, and you're glad God didn't give it to you? <laughs> your, kids, your kids ever ask you for something, but you know they're not ready for that. Or what they're asking for would really hurt them if you gave it to them now. So what do you say? No. Both of these examples are basically saying you have no understanding Understanding that I do. And if I give this to you, it's gonna mess you up. If I answer this prayer the way you think I should answer it, it's gonna be hardship for you. And he basically asks them again, do you understand what you're asking for? In verse 38, he says, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's asking them if they knew what it's gonna take to get that request. If you wanna sit on those thrones, do you understand what it's gonna take to get there? You guys understand what I'm saying here. You understand what I just said, I'm gonna be crucified, do you understand that? And do you understand that you're gonna be a part of that? And of course, the disciples, they were, oh yeah, we can do. The way to privilege position in God's economy is by giving up power and letting it go through suffering and death. The cup. In the Bible usually refers to suffering and trouble. Psalm seventy five eight for the Lord holds a cup in his hand. It's full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours the wine out in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining into the dregs. Isaiah fifty one seventeen Wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk enough, drunk enough from the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, dipping out its last drop. Ezekiel 23, yes, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink from the same cup of terror as your sister, a cup that is large and deep. So he's saying to them, when I say cup, do you understand what I'm saying? That judgment's coming. You're gonna be hurt the way I'm gonna be hurt. It's gonna cost you for that. For you to sit on those thrones, it's gonna cost you your life. And he uses the term baptism and as we learned from our baptism class, baptism, baptism means to submerge, in other words, bury. And it usually refers to trouble in the Old Testament. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. In other words, he's getting buried. Sink me in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. Psalm 18, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He's trying to get them to understand that in order to have this prayer answered, it's gonna require an immense amount of suffering before they actually get that reward of sitting on the throne. Now, if someone told me that, I might say, okay, forget, sorry I asked. Forget it. Lord, it's no big deal. I don't have to sit on your right or left. Just forget about that. But no, these guys, they doubled down on it. Yes, we can. We can do that. We can have all that suffering, although they don't think, I think it's suffering. They don't understand it. You ever told your kids how difficult something they might wanna do would be? And they say, yeah, I can do that. You know it's gonna hurt them, you know they're not gonna be able to do it, and they're gonna fail. Oh, but they can do it. God says, You have no idea what it's going to cost. And they think, oh, yeah, we can can do that. We can endure that. And you know for a second, once your kids start doing it, they can't handle it. In a minute, they're going to show you that they can't handle it. And at the first sign of hardship, your kids are going to bail. (laughs) As soon as things get hard, and you told them it's going to be hard, they start doing it. Oh, it's too hard. I'm out. But they they believe they can do it. The disciples believe they can endure what Jesus is saying. They probably don't think it's as bad as he's saying it's going to be. When you tell your kids how hard something is going to be, they don't believe you. Come on, it can't be that hard. You can do it. How can I do it? Jesus said to them, okay, you got it. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Jesus is basically saying to them, okay, you're gonna see how that turns out for you. Now, I I wanna point something out. If you remember last week, we showed Luke's take on their first response to Jesus. In Mark, when Jesus tells them he's gonna die, it went right into what they're talking about today. But Luke adds a sentence. Luke 18, 34 says, the disciples did not understand any of this its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. That makes a whole different light in the story, doesn't it? Now, how often do we see Jesus talking in parables and him explaining that they're not going to get it? I'm saying this to you, you'll get it, but most people won't. And I read that sometimes and I think that's kind of, kind of unfair. How, why is God hiding stuff from them? Well, the truth is, before we become Christians, we can't understand spiritual things. How many know that? It's not that God hides it from us, it's that we don't have the Holy Spirit to help us discern what God is saying. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, before we get too hard on the disciples, They literally can't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't have the Holy Spirit filling their lives yet, right? It's like trying to explain calculus to a five-year-old. They literally can't understand it. They don't have the Holy Spirit to help them interpret what Jesus is saying, and so they don't understand it. If we expect people who do not yet believe to understand what we know is to be true, it's not going to happen. People can't understand spiritual things until God illuminates it for them. It has to be a sovereign work of God to bring them to the point where they respond to God's draw. And at that point, they will get it. It's like a light bulb, I've said it before. Like a light bulb going off in your head, now I get it. Now I understand. But until that point, things that we think are just normal, how could people not understand what we see? It's because they're blinded to the truth. I'll give you a perfect example, abortion. I know you all hate to hear about it, but think about going back to in the 60s and 70s before we had the technology we had today, they didn't know anything. They agreed to it even though we knew it was wrong. With the technology they have today and the science that has advanced in in those years, there is physically no doubt that that's a baby. I mean, you look at that and you can't not see a baby. How many know what I'm talking about? And yet the world believes it's not. It's a spiritual blindness that they have. And when you try to explain that to them, they don't get it. And you look at how they respond to that and we think, how can you you miss that? How can you not see that? That's how it is when you try to explain spiritual things to people. They literally can't understand what you're saying. And it's only when they become a believer that God turns that light bulb on and they get it. They understand what you're saying. They don't know anything yet from the Bible, but they understand the spiritual aspect of things. So Jesus tells them, okay, you're going to drink from the cup. Now we know from Bible and from history that that, what happens to them. James was the first to be martyred. Acts 12.1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. First known martyr. And John, as we know, experienced great persecution all his life. Exiled by himself on this rock of an island called Patmos. He was the only disciple that died an actual natural death. All the other disciples were executed in some manner or form. So yeah, they they suffered and got what they're gonna get. And the Bible says at the end they get the thrones. Jesus also refused to usurp God the Father's authority. Mark 10, 40 says, I have no right to say who's gonna sit on the thrones next to mine. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. God gets to determine who gets what and how much. You look at the world do you ever wonder why God has blessed this country so much compared to other countries? I mean, you look at famine, starvation, wars, everything, all these bad things happening in all these other countries, but yet we have this, like, this little plot of land that God seems to be pouring his blessing out upon. I think you know, we were, we we're sending missionaries out. We still preach the gospel. We're able to do that. I think God's allowing us to do that. He's blessed us because of it. But I also think that as that diminishes, so does the blessing. God gets to determine who gets what and how much. There are some people that go through the life and they seem to be blessed from the beginning to end. They don't really suffer any hardship that we know about. It's just they seem to be, have it perfect. Then you have other people that seem to have hardship after hardship after hardship. We don't understand it. Our class we read Hebrews 11. Where Jesus talks. Or whoever the author of Hebrews is. Talks about all the guys that did great things. David and Samson and Jephthah. And all those great guys. Then he goes on to say all the guys that didn't get it. They were suffered and persecuted and killed. Cut in half. But all of them the Bible says were faithful. Why some? Why not others? We don't know. The point is God gets to determine how much. And who gets what and we have to be okay with God's sovereignty in that area. The class was disappointment with God and sometimes you get disappointed when things don't turn out the way you think they should turn out. Jesus saying, I'm not picking that. God is the arbiter of everything. He gets the sovereignty pick and choose. So, verse 41 says, when the other 10 heard it, They discovered that James and John had asked. They were indignant. So why? Why were they indignant? Now we might think that they were mad at these guys for being presumptuous. But that was probably not the case. One commentator says, because they didn't get to ask Jesus first. (laughs) Oh, those guys asked us first. Nabbit. Now the Bible says that none of them understood. So... That's probably possible. If nobody understood what Jesus was saying, they were probably mad that they got beaten to the punch. Now it doesn't say, but how Jesus responds may give us an idea of how the question and the indignance showed itself. Verse 42 says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that in this world, the kings are tyrants and officials lorded over the people beneath them. But among you, it should be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. So he calls all the 12 together and at the same time addresses them as a group. So it seems that not getting the ask the question first is probably what's in everybody's mind. Now he asked first, I should have asked first. I should have done it first. So Jesus says, look, all of you come together. I know you're all thinking the same thing. Here's the truth. And then since they still didn't understand Jesus has to use a real life example. And the example is those in power tend to dominate and rule over those who are not in power. Amen. He's telling them not to act like the rest of the world. You need to be different. Be the reason that someone sees something in you that should draw them to Jesus. Something totally opposite of what everybody else is doing. You wanna be powerful? You wanna show God's love? Serve other people. You wanna be first in God's kingdom? Make yourself a slave to those around you. Being a follower of Jesus should make us want to act like Jesus. Jesus was what? A servant. He served others. We should want to be like that. He washed feet. He served others first. In fact, he even plainly tells them that this is how he lived. Verse 45 says, For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others. Now the Son of Man is a messianic term. So he is basically saying, even even me, the Messiah, I'm serving others. If that's true, then why aren't you serving others? You want to be great and be like me? serve other people. Don't worry about the reward you're gonna get in the end. In addition to being a servant, he also became a physical ransom. Verse 45 goes on, not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, I think we've all seen enough TV shows and movies to know what ransom is, right? In the New Testament, it literally means redemption, Or release. Now, in the movies, it's usually a bunch of money, right, for the release of a prisoner or a captive. In our lives, we've been held captive by sin, the Bible says. The Bible says we're a slave to sin. We can't help it but to sin. Just like the disciples couldn't understand Jesus because they did not have the Holy Spirit, we're unable to break the chain of sin in our own self. In other words, Neither can we help being a slave to sin. When the opportunity comes to sin, you do it. If no one's looking at you and you're gonna get away with it, you knew you'd get away with it, you're gonna do it. it just, it's just human nature to do that. And the only way for us to be free from that, free from that temptation and free from the willingness to do something that no one knows about, if we're not, if we're not gonna get caught, I'm doing it. How many of you This is going back a few ways. I'm not sure if they make them anymore. Have radar detectors in your car. It's on the Walmart. Why do you have that? Because you know, if I don't hear this little beep on my radar detector, there's nobody up there shooting radar at me. So I'm going to speed. And the minute that light goes off saying there's radar, you stop. You speed because you know you're not going to get caught. You do things that you know you're not gonna get caught. If you're sitting at your desk, if you're sitting at your desk at your computer that no one else sees but you, there's a thousand bad things you can pull up on your computer and no one knows about but you and God. If you're a slave to sin, you're gonna watch all that stuff because no one knows. Don't care, God's not watching me, I don't know about God, I'm gonna do it. You're a slave to that. Once you become a Christian, now you have the ability to say no to that. You have motivation to say no to that because you know that right over your shoulder looking at your same screen is Jesus. (laughs) So when Jesus says, I'm going to be a ransom for many, Jesus is saying, I am going to deliver you from the prison of being a slave to doing things wrong, to being a sinner. Jesus was offering himself up as payment for my sins. In other words, I know Jeff is a wicked sinner, but I'm going to pay his debt for him. How many of you have a, you don't have to raise your hand, huge credit card debt, or huge debt in general? Wouldn't you love for someone to write you a check to pay off that debt? Can you, the freedom that you have at that moment when that debt is paid off, wow. When you make your last mortgage payment or your last car payment, it's like, ah, hallelujah. Then the car breaks down. (laughs) So you have five minutes of freedom. When you're free from sin, you know, man, I no longer have to do that. I'm no longer under God's, heavy hand of guilt. That even though I sin, I have an advocate who intercedes for me. And in fact, Jeff is such a wicked sinner that I'm gonna save him even when he doesn't know about it. <laughs> I'm, gonna pay the, I'm gonna pay it off for him and him not even know about it. I'm gonna keep telling him about it until he accepts the fact that I've paid it off. I'm gonna draw him and show him how much I love him and paid it off and I'm gonna take my time doing it because he's sick, he doesn't get it yet. But finally he's gonna get it. Jesus is long-suffering for those who don't know Christ. He's long-suffering trying to get their attention to let them know he's paid that off for them. And because we're his friends, he thinks we're worth it. Sometimes our kids don't think that we care for them because of how we parent them. But the truth is, even though we're not perfect parents, we parents sacrifice for our kids. And you don't get that usually until you have kids of your own, and then you realize it. Or when you're like 25 and you realize, well, all of a sudden mom and dad got smart. <laughs> they didn't know anything up until this point, now I see that they're smart. Because you know that as parents, your sacrifice for your kids, is worth it. Jesus knows that his sacrifice for us is worth it because he loves you. He does things for you that we don't understand most of the time. Like why would he do that? I don't know. The Bible says, who is man that thou art mindful of him? I have no idea why God cares for us other than the fact that what he does for us. but it's up to us to really accept God's ransom payment. God says his ransom is for many, not all. I mean, it's available to all, but not all take it. Not all receive that ransom. That means that not everyone who Jesus died for will appropriate that offer. Jesus loves the world, but most of the world doesn't love Jesus. The offer's out there. The Bible says, God the Father draws. No one comes unless the Father draws them. God's drawing them. God's drawing them. It's up to them to actually say yes to that draw. Jesus died for everyone, but not everyone will accept it. The last sentence I wrote was, did you? Would you stand as we close this morning? You bow your heads for a moment. Close your eyes. Jesus voluntarily gave his life for us in order that we might have eternal life with him. The Bible says he calls he doesn't call you servant, he calls you his friend. He's your friend. He loved you so much that he died for you, took your place. And really all he wants in return is for you to believe that. So you can be his friend. And guess what? I ask ourselves do we act like Jesus is our friend? Do we talk about Jesus behind his back? Do we do things that we know that if Jesus were with us, we wouldn't do? That's not a friend. That's a servant. Or do we live our lives every day thankful in the way we live and the way we act that, Lord, I'm your friend and I want to behave as a friend would behave. You've done so much for me, Lord, that I can't even repay. At least let me live my life that pleases you. I can't earn it. I can't earn your love for me, but I want to show you that I appreciate what you've done for me. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been in church all your life, or maybe you're relatively new at the church thing. But the Bible says, as we mentioned, that Jesus died for everybody. Because we've all we're all sinners. And the Bible says, since we're all sinners, the wages of those sins is death. In other words, the payment. What we get in return for sin is God's judgment. Because when we don't accept Christ, we're saying, God, we don't want you. We don't want your forgiveness. So God says, okay, then the alternative to my forgiveness is my judgment. The Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. We're all sinners. All deserving of punishment, but God says, I'll, I'll take it for you. And the only thing I'm asking you in return is to believe it. The Bible says, as many as receive him, did he give the authority of the right to be called children of God. It's not until you receive the gift of eternal life can you actually call yourself God's kid. God is not everyone's father. God is the father of, of those who believe if that's you and you've never really come to a point in your life where you've given your life to Christ you've never repented of your sin and asked God to forgive you of that sin and apply as we sang the blood of Christ to your life to cleanse you from sin then today's the day to do that the Bible says today's the day of salvation not next week not next month today And if you're here and you've never done that and you want to do that today, you want to make this the beginning of your walk with Christ so the light light bulb goes off in your head and you understand what we've been talking about. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Maybe you're here this morning and if I were to ask you by yourself, are you really behaving like Jesus' friend? And the only person that can answer that is you. Not outwardly, not what we do that everybody else sees, but in your personal life by yourself when you're alone. Do you treat Jesus like a friend? Do you live your life because you appreciate what God's already done for you? Or do you take what he's done for you for granted? You're not a friend. Father, we stand before you this morning and we thank you for giving up your life, giving up your son for us so that we could be your friend. A true friend. And Lord, I pray for each person here that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit. So we would begin to understand what it means to be a friend of God. Not a servant, not a slave, not a church member, but a friend of God. And that you love us like a friend loves us, a true friend. And we want to be able to love you back in the same manner as a true friend. I pray that your spirit gives us the ability to do that, to understand what you're speaking to us so that we are able to make our lives pleasing to you. It's our simple act of worship, Lord. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here as we leave this morning. Let us not leave what we've learned this morning here and what you've done in their lives here. Father, we take it with us so to that tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday, the Holy Spirit is still un- enabling us to be your friend. Father, we love you this morning. And we thank you for all you've done for us. And we thank you for being our friend in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Thursday night or Wednesday night for Thanksgiving Eve service.